Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the view from the Thorax Center for Radcliffe Cardiology. My name is Nicolas Famigem and I'm standing here with Jos Dame in San Francisco at TCT 2023. We are reviewing the late-breaking trials and uh, I think we can start with uh, the Partner 3 five-year outcome data. Yes. There was a lot of buzz running into TCT for this uh, trial and I must say at five years no difference between the two treatment strategies. And uh, that was reassuring, obviously, for mm -hmm. the DAVR space. And at the same time, there were some, um, some kind of indications that were of interest. For instance, there was no difference in hemodynamic valve performance mm -hmm. between the two strategies. I even so, even more so, there was one millimeter of mercury more transvalvular gradient in the TAVR arm versus surgery, but clinically insignificant. There was also somewhat more valve thrombosis with, uh, with TAVR, but at the end of the day, no difference in uh, clinical outcome. And also, if you look at the five-year mortality rate, only 10% in a patient population with a mean age of 75 years at study entry, those are kind of very good results. Absolutely. Yeah, I think very reassuring results. A lot of fuss about potentially crossing event curves with mortality, um, but at the end, really not not really convincing data. And also the valve thrombosis rates. I mean, below two point five percent is, uh, I think, still very low, uh, up to five years. So uh, to me, reassuring results. And also, it did not result in more bioprosthetic valve failure. So mm -hmm. that is definitely, from a clinical point of view, very mm -hmm. relevant. Correct. Well, then in the Following up the partner three, there was also the four-year uh, data from the Evolute Low Risk. Mike, Mike Reardon presented that data, and those data looked really excellent. As you know, mean age of these patients were, again, 74 years old. Uh, the mean gradient of the valve procedure was only four millimeters of mercury with mm -hmm. TAVI versus nine versus surgery. So yeah. there, the hemodynamic valve performance of the supraannular functioning valve, as we know, was superior, and it turned out to be superior at uh, four years, there was more endocarditis in the surgical arm yeah. versus the TAVR arm. And mm -hmm. that was that was notable, 2.2% versus 1%. Mm -hmm. But if you then look at the primary composite, and that was the main takeaway, at least as far as I'm concerned, it was def definitely in favor of TAVI because it was there was a significant difference in favor of TAVI. 14% for surgery versus 10% uh, in the TAVI arm. If you look, if you focus at mortality, it was 9% versus 12% and mm -hmm. slightly missed statistical significance with a p-value of 0.07. And if you look at re-interventions, also very low numbers in both treatment arms, nine cases with TAVI, 10 cases with surgery, no differences in re-hospitalization. So overall, very strong data uh, for TAVI uh, in my opinion. I totally agree. And uh, even for this particular data on, on Evolute, you saw the event curves even seminating or, or diverging over time in favor of TAVI. So also with respect to the mortality, um, yeah, that will be longer term follow up. So that is definitely something to uh, to keep following in the future. Yeah. yeah, but you know, if you, if you, you can't help but comparing the two trials, right? And if you look at, uh, at the partner three, you do see the curves like um, coming together yeah. at five years. Which is, which is okay because you see that the, the hard clinical endpoints are very low, mm -hmm. but in the Evolute low risk arm, you see that the, that the two curves are diverging further and as to your point. So that is quite notable. And the question then is, um, is this a device effect? Well, we probably will need more data. We need more follow-up, mm -hmm. more trials. But I think this is an indication that this is yeah. potentially um, a device effect. Yeah. 
Yena valve. Yes, Yena valve, that's a totally different concept and it's focusing on aortic regurgitation. So the Trilogy valve was being studied in the Align AR trial. 180 patients were treated with pure AR in the United States. Approximately 50% of the patients were women. The SDS score was uh, 4%. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, you know, if you look at it from a procedural point of view, we were interested in embolizations. Mm -hmm. Well, the embolizations were not really an issue. In mm -hmm. these patients with no aortic root calcification, only yeah. four embolizations. Yeah. And that is quite powerful because we are all familiar with these um, other devices, these other tower devices that are designed for degenerative calcific aortic stenosis. Well, you do see all kinds of issues with valve migration, valve embolization, not so with um, the Trilogy valve. Mortality at 30 days, only 2%, stroke only 2%, um, moderate PVL only in one patient, 0.6%. So very powerful data. The only um, thing that was notable was the pacemaker rate. And as expected, we already mentioned that in our preview, one in four of the patients ended up with a pacemaker. At the end of the trial, there was this trend towards decline, so fewer patients were requiring uh, a pacemaker. But still, I think um, AR is a different animal than aortic stenosis. Probably also uh, the way the conduction system is, is being affected by the AR upfront might then have consequences for the TAVR procedure. So I'm not very concerned about that. Don't, uh, don't forget, these are potentially very vulnerable patients and surgeons are not very keen on treating these patients. Yeah, also to me, very reassuring findings in a, uh, in, in a technology purely developed for AR initially and in a subset of patients that was initially actually declined for surgery. Yeah. Pacemakers from 30% in the beginning to 14% at the, uh, at the later stages within the trial with a little bit of less aggressive oversizing, uh, maybe somewhat higher implants. Uh, so also that I think reassuring and uh, definitely something that uh, uh, will be continued in the future with larger trial programs in, uh, in, in different sets. For sure. Next up, VIVA. VIVA uh, was an important trial, I think. It was comparing TAVI with surgery in patients with a small anatomy. And as yeah. expected, we had uh, the majority of patients were women, almost, uh, so more than 90%. Uh, 150 patients were in included. STS score was 2.5%. Yeah. So we're talking about a low-risk uh, mm -hmm. population. Um, in the TAVI arm, both self-expanding yeah. and balloon-expandable valves were used, 60% self-expanding, 40% balloon-expandable valves. And then in the surgical arm, very noticeable, mm -hmm. only 7% of the patients uh, received uh, aortic root enlargement. enlargement. That said, no difference in hemodynamic valve performance between the two treatment strategies. And at 30 days, there was only one death in each treatment arm. There was uh, no stroke in the TAVI arm, two stroke cases in the yeah. surgical arm. So overall, very good results and out to two years, no difference between the two strategies in terms of clinical endpoints. Yeah. Would you have expected better gradients in the TAVR arm? I mean, it was 50% absolute, 50% sapien in this trial, more or less. Well, so that obscures things, obviously. Yeah. If, you then, if you then look at uh, the TAVI arm in general, mm -hmm. I, I don't know the granularity, whether they separated, but separated between balloon expandable and yeah. self-expanding valves. But obviously, the numbers will uh, will uh, be very, yeah, very low for a relatively that. small trial. But, but I was... I was to be honest, I was expecting large, uh, larger valve areas with surgery, and I was expecting more root enlargements. 
That's so, correct. And I think because of the low rate of root enlargements, there was no difference in hemodynamic yeah. valve performance. Yeah. So yeah, but again, a good study by Ulus Cabo mm -hmm. and uh, definitely something that we can uh, we can consider in our practice. Mm -hmm. So also in low risk patients, yeah. TAVI is a good alternative Absolutely. to surgery Absolutely. in small anatomies. Okay, let's move to um, a different area. Area the agent trial. Agent, uh, so in the coronary space, the agent trial to me was one of the most uh, interesting uh, interesting studies to be presented this meeting. So please recall, agent was the uh, uh, first, uh, FD, actually Boston's pivotal trial on getting the agent uh, baclodexal coated drug coated balloon uh, uh, tested. And this could be with this trial, the first device being admitted to the US market. So from that, a ver that perspective, a very important trial. So it was a trial that uh, aimed to enroll 480 patients with instant restenosis uh, to either the paclitaxel-coated adhesion balloon or a standard balloon angioplasty. Mm -hmm. So no stenting, just a plain balloon angioplasty. Uh, very interesting. This trial aimed for a, uh, a event reduction of around 50%, which was very ambitious in its primary endpoint being target lesion failure at one year. But then it appeared that this trial enrolled so quickly that the 480 patients were enrolled very swiftly. A lot of discussions with the FDA because most patients even didn't manage to get that one-year follow-up. And then the FDA agreed to present an interim analysis, uh, which this presentation concerned on mm. the 40% of patients that uh, on, on the at least uh, data with 40% of the patients having uh, a one-year follow-up. And with that, they were able to uh, demonstrate a, a significant 10% absolute difference in the primary endpoint, 18% in the uh, target lesion failure in the uh, uh, taxacoded balloon arm versus mm -hmm. 28 in the uh, in the control arm. And with that, a remarkable difference in the uh, in the primary endpoint, driven by a 50% reduction in TLR, as you would have hoped for, but also a 50% reduction in the uh, risk of repeat target vessel myocardial infarction, which uh, really exceeded my expectations, I have to admit. Um, the data will be uh, continue to be completed, so we hope that the uh, final publication will contain the, uh, the estimated number of 600 patients that will be enrolled. Uh, so with that, the final results may change a little bit, but uh, with these findings, uh, I think a very positive trial and a, uh, I think a right step in, the, a step in the right direction for getting this device approved on the US market specifically uh, for instant restenosis in a subset of patients, which I forgot to mention, which was quite complex, 50% diabetes, 43% mm -hmm. with multiple stent layers. So really patients in which you would also perhaps not have been so keen to, uh, to put additional stents. So that to me takes also away one of the uh, perhaps key limitations of the trial in terms of design. It's good to see that we have a positive study yeah. with drug-coated balloons uh, for this indication. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, do you have some more insights in the control arm? What kind of balloons were being used? Were, were non-compliant no cutting balloons. balloons? No, non-compliant balloons. I haven't seen any data on, on the use of, of cutting balloons. It's an interesting point, by the way, because a lot of, of, of new hypotheses are being raised to first do a cutting or scoring balloon before applying the drug-coated yeah. balloon in order to get a bit better drug dissemination. But I think this is a concept that needs to be uh, tested into uh, into greater detail. And imaging? Imaging, yes, good point. Imaging was used, I think it's 75% of the patients within the trial, which is yeah. remarkable for, uh, for a trial like this. Uh, but it does a little bit to the guidelines that are really pointing in a direction to recommending the use of imaging specifically in case yeah, of that. And, and I think it makes sense, right? You want to understand what's going on, what's happening, uh, what kind of uh, restenosis are you talking about? And that might also help determine your strategy. Yeah. And in terms of using um, a non-compliant balloon prior mm -hmm. to a drug-coated balloon, I must say I do that quite often. Yeah, but I think that's also what is routinely recommended to, yeah. uh, to be done. Okay. Yes.
All right. More on DCBs was the DCB ACS trial, which was a Chinese trial from Harbin, uh, randomizing 224 patients presenting with uh, with STEMI mm. that underwent successful recanalization of the of the culprit artery, which then should contain a lesion of less than 28 millimeter to either drug coated balloons versus standard of care, which uh, which typically included a drug loading stent. Uh, but then, interesting, a primary endpoint of FFR at nine months. Uh, I anticipated actually a negative trial since I assumed that the acute gain with a stent would obviously be significantly larger than with the uh, with the drug coated balloon. But that said, uh, the FFR at nine months, 0.89 in the drug coated balloon arm versus 0.9 in a uh, in the in the isotretinoin stent arm, which was obviously meeting the criteria for uh, for non inferiority. And with that trial, with that, the trial met its uh, its primary endpoint. Obviously, small number of patients, so no significant differences in the, in the primary endpoint at one year. But what you did see is a, a slight divergence of the event curves, even in favor of DCB arm at, uh, at one year. So obviously, very uh, uh, provocative, provocative low number yeah. of patients. I don't think we should pay too much attention to that. But at least the uh, trial adds a little bit of, of, of conceptual uh, uh, proof on the potential... Uh, Feasibility of this strategy in patients with ACS. That said, I have to admit, I didn't see any data on, on the rate of bailout stenting. I think this is an important uh, confounder in, in, in trials like this. In the PAPA trial 10 years ago, almost 40% uh, bailout stenting in the DCB arm. So this is something I think that should be taken into account. I haven't seen the details for this trial. Well, but rest assured, we will see many more drug-coated balloon yeah. trials in Absolutely. the in the near future. And you know, also know it in in Europe, the mm. uptake of drug-coated balloon is uh, is quite minimal, right? It's 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 still low. I think it, yeah. it's it's increasing for instant restenosis. Uh, there's a lot of focus now on small vessels, but yeah. yeah, I mean, according to the the trials ongoing, small vessels are now even growing to three point five percent. I'm not sure that's the direction to move on to, but um, yeah, I think these these data are uh, yeah. are interesting. Very good. TPAS. TPAS platelet. So this is the uh, large randomized control trial from South Korea comparing a shortened or abbreviated DAPT regimen of uh, aspirin and ticagrelor versus a standard DAPT regimen of aspirin and ticagrelor in patients uh, presenting uh, with acute coronary syndrome. So a total of 2,850 patients were randomized either to a regimen in which the uh, aspirin was stopped in this trial on a mean of a median of 16 days and then mm -hmm. uh, pers per, uh, pursued with ticagrelor monotherapy for up to one year versus a, a standard control arm of, of DAPT for one year consisting of aspirin ticagrelor. The trial was designed in a, in a non-inferiority way. Um, we expected the trial to meet that endpoint following the uh, the TICO trial, the uh, Twilight trial, the uh, sub-analysis of global leaders. But these data were even uh, perhaps a bit more striking. So finally, a uh, primary endpoint, a net adverse event clinical endpoint, including ischemic as well as bleeding uh, events of, uh, if I'm correct, 2.8% uh, in the abbreviated DAPT arm versus 5.4% in the uh, control arm. Well, that the trial not only met a non-inferiority, even superiority. Huh. And that was, was to me, quite striking. Uh, in a difference uh, that was obviously, as expected, driven by a significant reduction in major bleeding, which was 1.2% in the abbreviated arm versus 3.4% in, uh, in the control arm. So with that, this is now the third trial in line, also now in the uh, Asian population, demonstrating the concept of a abbreviated DUP regimen in patients with ACS. So this is, I think, a series of trials now that may uh, may have the potential to change the guidelines and to 
simplified uh, uh, DAPG or simplified um, uh, platelet aggregation uh, regimens yeah. in patients with uh, with AC. And no signal of stent thrombosis. No, stent thrombosis rates were were very low. I don't have the yeah. uh, the exact yeah. numbers uh, here, but uh, the results were very very promising. Yeah. And mind you, I mean, uh, five two to five percent event rates, and that adverse event rates at one year lower. By itself Trim already, extremely yeah. low, yeah. which is yeah. typical for these 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 Asian trials, which which tend to have somewhat lower event rates as compared to the uh, the Western trials we are uh, we we have been looking at. So they they beg for uh, trials also in uh, Europe and yeah. In the but United I think with, with with Twilight and Tico and also the global leaders data, I think there is now a, a significant body of evidence uh, supporting the the safety and feasibility of this concept. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Watchtower. Yeah, Watchtower, we go back to the structural space. Um, Watchtower was an interesting study uh, comparing the introduction of a Watchman LAA closure in patients who undergo TAVR and have atrial fibrillation. So patients were randomized to either TAVI plus a Watchman LAA closure or TAVR plus standard of care, including uh, mm -hmm. oral anticoagulant drug therapy. Uh, 349 patients were enrolled. It was uh, 80 years was the mean age, 40% uh, were women. General anesthesia was applied in 84% of the patients in the watchman arm versus 36% uh, um, in the control arm. And also uh, the implementation of watchman uh, use mm -hmm. added 43 minutes to the procedure. Okay, it result there was no Mm -hmm. issue of uh, uh, harm, if you will. There were only four pericardial effusions with the watchman versus one pericardial effusion in the control arm. And uh, if you look at the antithrombotic regime that was applied in the, in the mm -hmm. treatment arm, so patients received the watchman and then continued with vitamin K plus clopidogrel for six weeks, mm -hmm. and then DAPT, aspirin and clopidogrel for six months. Yeah. And then basically the antithrombotics could be uh, could be stopped. Well, um, there was no difference in the primary endpoint of death, stroke, and major bleeding, which is an important uh, net adverse event mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, composite if you want. At two years of thirty-seven percent versus thirty-four percent, so the non-inferiority was met. There were uh, seven. The stroke rate was seven percent in the control arm versus five point seven percent in the uh, watchman arm, mm -hmm. and there was also no difference in bleeding. So I think um, interesting data. We already discussed in our preview uh, whether this will lead to an upgrade, uh, an, up an increased uptake of mm -hmm. watchmen's. For instance, in the Netherlands, yeah. no, because there is no reimbursement for watchmen. So I think we need to fine tune a bit more which patients would benefit from LAA closure. But uh, again, I think uh, interesting, um, interesting findings, so definitely no signal of harm. And also notable uh, was that one third of the patients in the control arm were no longer on oral anticoagulant drug therapy at two years. So they had suboptimal uh, stroke pre uh, prevention at that point. So this is of interest in elderly patients, obviously. Conceptually, absolutely, I think a, a interesting technology, but uh, we definitely need more data to get this implemented into our practice. Mm -hmm. For sure. Triluminate. Yeah, so we move now to the tricuspid space. Uh, there were two trials that we wanted to highlight first. There was the Triluminate pivot Pivotal trial that was already uh, presented earlier this year, but now we have the full cohort of patients. So 572 patients were treated uh, in uh, the trial, uh, whereas only 350 patients were included in the New England Journal paper uh, of uh, last March. 
The results were quite striking. So 88% of the patients in the treatment arm, so with a, a tear procedure, had a reduction to less than moderate uh, TR, which is quite impressive. And it resulted in um, an improvement in six meter and a six minute walk test of uh, 15 meters versus a deterioration of the six minute walk test of 12 meters mm -hmm. in the control arm. So these are minor differences. Uh, and the KCCQ uh, increase was uh, six uh, KCCQ points in the control arm versus 14 in the, the treatment arm. So yes, I think uh, what we can conclude from this trial is that tear does work with a triclip. You will reduce um, uh, your TR in selected patients, obviously, and it will translate in better um, overall functional uh, performance mm -hmm. uh, of these patients. So I do feel that um, this is the uh, a right step uh, or a step in the right direction. I agree. I agree. I think uh, promising data <clears throat> uh, differences are small. Uh, yeah. 16 meters is, is, is not a lot. No. But I think you need also need to be honest and put that in perspective for the type of patients that receive these procedures. Why right? these were not 60 year old vital no. uh, walking patients? No, these were elderly typically frail, uh, in which you would not expect for them now to run for two kilometers exactly. in six meters in 600, uh, in six minutes. So this is, uh, I think, promising data. Yeah, yeah. Good. And, and then there was Tricent 2. And Tricent 2, different concept. We're not talking about tier, but we are talking about tricuspid valve replacement. And mm -hmm. Sushil Kodali um, presented data on 150 patients of the randomized control trial. So the randomized control trial was randomizing 400 patients, mm -hmm. two to one, to either tricuspid valve replacement with the EVOC system versus the control arm of optimal medical therapy. 96 patients received EVOC uh, transcatheter therapy, 54% were in the control arm. The mean age of the patients was 79 years, 80% were women, and the STS score was 10, so <clears throat> a very high uh, risk patient population. AF was um, approximately in all patients. Atrial, at atrial fibrillation, and also inter of interest, 40% of the patients had a pacemaker in place. Yes. So um, regardless of that, uh, it was predominantly secondary TR. The procedure time was less than two hours, which is quite, uh, quite good for, uh, for this kind of technology, in my opinion. Only 2% of the patients required uh, a conversion to surgery. So it seemed to be a procedure that has uh, acceptable safety. Yeah. And the major adverse event rate was uh, lower in the treatment arm. So 27 versus 37% with a mortality rate of only 3% at yeah. 30 days and a pacemaker rate of 14% with major vascular complications of only 3%. Only 5% had more than mild TR after an EVOC implantation. Yeah. And all that resulted in also an improvement of functional status. So the KCCQ improved with 21% points. Yeah, that is a lot. That's a lot. Yes, versus only three, three yeah. points in the control arm. And the six-minute walk test improved marginally with 10 meters and deteriorated in the control arm with mm. 20 meters. So I think this is these are good results. And these definitely are supporting transcatheter treatment of mm -hmm. tricuspid regurgitation. Yeah, totally agree and align with the uh, with the previous results. I think uh, a right step forward in the, uh, in, in the treatment of patients with TR. Yeah, yeah. So Pixel. we go back now to STEMI patients. STEMI patients, yeah, Pixel. So Pixel, please recall, Pixel was the uh, the system is the pressure controlled intermittent coronary sinus occlusion uh, device that was uh, developed with the intention to reduce infarct size in patients presenting with myocardial infarction, with obviously the intent to improve uh, prognosis in patients presenting with large infarct 
So this, as uh, predicted in the preview, was the, uh, the, the, the proof of the pudding, so the randomized controlled trial, 145 STEMI patients with large anterior STEMI, so proximal LED occlusions, that were then one-to-one -one randomized to either the, uh, to either primary P PCI uh, with the big shot technology versus primary PCI alone with the primary endpoint of uh, infarct size at uh, five days. So a little bit as anticipated, uh, difficult trial, uh, yet still uh, 75 to 80% of patients met the primary endpoint of reaching the, uh, the MRI. This is always a bit complex. We learned that from, uh, from previous trials. But that still represented a sample of patients, but then uh, no uh, difference at all in uh, inf infarct size, 27% in, uh, in the pixel arm versus 28% in the control arm, obviously uh, not statistically significantly different. The procedure appeared to be safe, but was associated with 45 minutes, more procedure time, more radiation, more contrast uh, load. So with that, uh, I think uh, a little bit disappointing results for the uh, for, for the uh, for this technology, at least conceptually. Uh, also in terms of clinical endpoints, small sample size, um, but in all these these secondary endpoints, including the clinical endpoints, MR parameters at five days, but also at uh, I think six months, uh, not not even a trend towards uh, a treatment effect with this technology. So a little bit disappointing. Well, and it illustrates how difficult it is to, yeah. to improve further on, on the concept of primary PCI. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, we'll see what uh, other trials, for instance, the STEMI DTU uh, will offer, right? This is yeah. a different concept where, you know, the impella unloading is implemented before uh, yeah. revascularizing the occluded vessel. You know, these concepts, it's it's not a given, you know? No, it's, it's, it's as you say, it's, it's, it's difficult. And I think, and I haven't seen that for Pixel, I have to admit, uh, but what could be one of the one of the triggers of effect, irrespective of the type of technology you use, is the, uh, is the ischemia time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could envisage that the longer you wait or the slower you are with implementing these new technologies, the smaller the, the actual treatment benefit will be. Uh, and in that perspective, uh, I see light at the end of the tunnel, but there needs to be uh, better technologies and, and, and more proof of the, of the concept. Finally, we, we, yeah, we cannot stop without, uh, without renal denervation. So what's happening here? Yeah, so uh, Ajay Kirtney presented the pooled analysis of the RADIANCE trial. So uh, please remember the three uh, large randomized or the three randomized control, uh, sham control trials comparing ultrasound, uh, ultrasound RDN with the Paradise system versus uh, sham in patients either with mild to moderate hypertension or therapy-resistant hypertension, the radius trio program. Uh, and we followed these patients for a primary endpoint at uh, two months, uh, uh, all uh, positive in each of the three individual trials that were pooled. Mm -hmm. So a total of uh, 506 patients that were now followed up until six months. And please remind you, all these endpoints were blinded to patient and physician. Mm -hmm. uh, but after two months, after the primary endpoint, a uh, stepwise uh, protocolized uh, um, antihypertensive drug therapy increase was allowed, uh, a titration, I should say, was allowed uh, up to six months in order to assess the uh, the long-term effect of the uh, of the treatment in patients uh, with mm -hmm. hypertension. Very reassuring findings. So the therapy at six months appeared to be very safe with no differences in the major adverse event rates between both arms. But importantly, what we found was that in patients in the RDN arm, significantly less drugs were added between two and six months, on average 1.2 versus 1.7 in the control arm, um, but still less. Uh, so you would expect that that would dilute a little bit the treatment effect, and that was indeed the case. Now at uh, six months, in which adherence, by the way, was still 80% by, uh, by a metabolite testing, so very good. 
uh, still a, a statistically significant uh, difference in blood pressure in favor of the RDN arm as compared to control of three millimeters of mercury based on daytime ambulatory blood pressure was the primary endpoint and between five and six millimeter reduction in the uh, office and home blood pressure measurements, which is relatively small, mm. but should be seen in light of the fact that patients in the control arm uh, receive more drugs uh, during this, uh, this uh, titration period of two to six months. So uh, to me, reassuring data, uh, actually further confirming the efficacy of the, of the therapy at least up to six months, and uh, another step forward in the uh, in the way towards uh, FDA approval that is uh, expected to be granted within the uh, next couple of weeks for this technology. And, and so, what do you think is going to happen in the future? What kind of studies uh, are going to come in the space of renal denervation for hypertension? That's that's the one million dollar question. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of debate now as to which type of patients this technology should be applied, and people say yeah, this should be restricted to patients with very difficult to control hypertension. Conversely, the vast majority of patients we see are obviously those who are not willing to take drugs or intolerant to drugs uh, or who cannot be controlled with the, with the current uh, means and measures for, for, for getting uh, uh, blood pressure control. So it's a huge number of patients and whether you should restrict this to uh, high-risk patients, low-risk patients, mm. resistant patients, that, that's I think a discussion that has not been settled will also be driven by, by cost-effectiveness uh, cost models that will need to be performed. But in my perspective, and that's a discussion we had with the, with with both companies for quite some time, a, uh, a outcome trial is is to me is inevitable. Uh, these are specifically if you focus on high risk patients, patients with high risk for stroke, high risk for uh, repeat hospitalizations, for hypertensive crises, mm -hmm. etc. So this not necessarily would need fifteen thousand patients. I think in an era in which reimbursement is now slowly. Uh, uh, being uh, managed and, and, and established in, in even European countries, I do believe the uh, a outcome trial would be uh, a step forward to, to finally convince the community of the, uh, of the potential therapeutic effect of the therapy. All right. With that, I think we wrap up the late-breaking trials here at TCT. Thank you very much, Joost. I uh, you. also want to thank uh, Radcliffe Cardiology and CRF uh, for the ability to, uh, to do the recordings here on site. It's always a pleasure to do that. Uh, I'm also about to lose my voice because this was a quite intensive uh, <laughs> stay here in San Francisco. Thank you very much uh, for joining us for this wrap-up and uh, we'll see you for the next preview of AHA. Thank you for watching. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.